Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And as usual, this is an episode we're releasing on Tuesday. So with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going, man? Good, Bradley. How are you doing? I'm good. I, I should note that we were recording this uh, on Sunday. Usually we record on Monday, but we had some scheduling conflicts. But Hugo, you, go back, you got back from London last night, right? I did. I did. How was I, it? I missed the, um, as I know you missed it, I missed both of the Arcade Fire shows um, at Barry Ballroom, the surprise Arcade Fire shows. You know, so while I would not want to see an Arcade Fire show, um, Barry Ballroom probably a pretty cool venue to see them in. But you wouldn't want to go under any circumstances, like you don't like I them? I find or... them kind of whiny and annoying and pretentious. Oh. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan. I've, I saw them. They played, um, they played a week at Judson Memorial Church on Washington Square Park, uh, uh, like, I don't know, 10 years ago? Something like that. And it, it was just incredible. Like, they, yeah. they ended each concert, like, in the middle of the crowd. Um, it was really just a critical show. Yeah, I will. A band that talented uh, in a tiny venue is going to seem it's going to be great, kind of almost no matter what, right? Right. Um, right. But uh, so, how was London? London, I mean, I love London. Um, we went. We had one like celebratory dinner, or actually, it was a lunch at at uh, River Cafe in Hammersmith, which is uh, may, maybe the best restaurant I've ever eaten in. Really? Um, What'd you have? I mean, we just had everything. I actually had a spaghetti with crab. That's what I had. But it was just, we ate like kings. It was fantastic. And um, it was a beautiful sunny day. And we were there for three hours. And it was just perfect. Um, and we and did the, the four of you or were there other, other families? There were others. It was, it was the birthday of, of one of my wife's best friends. So um, there were a few other people there. And we just had like a, a feast. And it kind of capped off the week. We had a lovely week just like strolling around London and, you know, whatever. It's just like the best walking city in the world that I know of anyway. And it was, it was wonderful. But I, I, did, I did have this kind of, uh, you know, reading the newspaper, stuff with Ukraine, um, the kind of sort of anxiety that felt just kind of palpable um, everywhere. Did it feel more real in Europe than it did does in the U.S. Well, you know, it's not like it's not like Ukraine is all that close to England, but I I, I do think that that it it sort of calls into question or deeper question, I guess I should say, the whole kind of European um, community in a sense, and that's obviously something that. English people care deeply about, even with Brexit, um, and affects their lives pretty directly. So um, it, it was definitely sort of front of mind when we were talking to people who live there um, in a way that, you know, it, it certainly was right at the beginning for for uh, for Americans, or at least Americans we talked to. Um, and it's it's you know it's still still pretty significant, but but uh, but yeah, I think it I think it was it was definitely more more in the air than it is here. What else? You had mentioned when we texted last night that kind of generally speaking, Europe just felt different to you. Not not that just at the U.S., but then the last time you'd been there. Well, yeah, I mean, I had this feeling, you know, the, the one the one thing that any American or most Americans feel in going to Europe is in Western Europe is just how, you know, it's it's much nicer than the United States in most ways. The cities are are cleaner and, and the transportation works better. And, the you know, the sort of historic areas have this grandeur that, you know, we're not really used to in the United States. Um, but I was I, I happen to be doing some reading just about sort of technology stuff and it. it it sort of struck me just how far behind Europe is the, uh, the U S in terms of innovation and, and the, and the kind of like 
modernization of its economy. And I kind of, I kind of had this feeling as I was walking around that, that this was just like some giant gift shop for the world, you know, not like, not really running the world like the way London was kind of set up to do, you know, a hundred years ago or 200 years ago. Um, but really just this kind of place where people come to consume things and people from around the world come to feel a part of like this kind of old tradition, but that the future looks a lot less, um, I don't know, exciting is the word. It, it, it looks, it truly feels like the best days are, are in the, in the rear view. And that, that, in, that came up in particular, I was looking, I happened to be looking at a chart of the, of the top 100 most valuable software companies, um, in the world. And the United States has, I think it's 76 of them. And, um, Great Britain, which is, you know, like, uh, a fairly significant economy has, has four. <laughs> yeah. And, they've, never, they've never been like a huge tech innovator but it but it feels like it feels like not being a tech innovator now is a is is a pretty fatal condition i mean fatal is the wrong word great britain's not going to fall apart or die or anything like that in any time in any time horizon we can look at but but the 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 failure to make sort of you know make technology a really integral part of your economy um, is a, I mean, is a, is a, is a big problem and they'll, they'll need to, they'll need to make a lot more headway. And I, I was actually listening to a do podcast. You think it's, it's that the U S made it part of our economy, or do you think we have a less regulated economy than, than the EU for sure? And probably with the UK will be as well. And therefore innovation was able to kind of flourish over here in a way that it just wasn't in Europe. Well, I think it's I think it's actually the latter. What you're saying um, is is the bigger issue, but I do think you know there's all that you know that is, I mean often remarked upon um, that the you know that the that Silicon Valley sort of grew out of a lot of government research that was happening in the in the post war era, um, post World War II era. Um, so I mean I, I do think weirdly the role of our government in in fostering innovation is is probably. a a great deal more impressive than, than, than Europe's. Um, but I also think it's, it has a lot to do with getting out of the way as well. And, and, and allowing, you know, I mean, the, 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 the need to sort of preserve jobs in traditional industries, which is, you know, significant force in the United States as well is far greater in Europe. Um, you know, I think the, the, uh, I saw this amazing statistic and it's not new. So it's not like this should come to some startling, it should be a shock to anybody, but like Apple computers or Apple no longer called Apple computers is, is more valuable than the 30 richest publicly traded companies in Germany, like one American company. And you think of like Germany, it's like, you know, it's a major economy and one American company is bigger than it's 30. And and do you feel like, Therefore, uh, the United States is at its height of its powers, or do you think what has happened in Europe is happening here, and we just don't totally realize it yet? Well, I don't think it's at the height of its powers, but uh, but I, uh, you know, I think this thing feeds on itself. So I think the amount of sort of entrepreneurial and engineering talent in the United States is 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 so much deeper and richer than 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 elsewhere. That you know, if you're starting a a software company, um, or, a you know, a company that really depends on, on advanced technology. I mean, you know, A, there's no better place in the United States for it, but, but, uh, but, you know, why would you do it in Europe if you had a choice? I mean, to, Um, to me, what this really 
argues for, though, is is more immigration in the U.S. Because I think anyone in tech listening to this would say, what are you talking about? All the, all the engineers that we need are like in India and China and Asia and places where it used to be very easy to bring them in. And after Trump, it, it's become much, much harder. So and, and then the question I asked myself when, when I was thinking that was, OK, so then why is not India poised to then be? you know, the next UK, the next US, and, and maybe it is, but they have so many other problems in terms of extreme poverty and lack of infrastructure and everything else that, you know, I think the US is still best positioned to take advantage of all the talent, but only if if we let the people in, right? And, and Trump, I understand his entire political philosophy, or, or at least his argument was, you know, only Americans are good. And, and if I have to punish the economy overall to make average Americans feel better about themselves, I'll do so. But I'm not sure why this is still such a big problem with Biden. I agree. I, I mean, I think it's a, it's it's kind of the easiest um, kind of economic development you can decision you can make. Um, and yeah. Look, and by the way, you know, like even I was, we were, Abby and I were skiing last week in Utah, and uh, some of the lifts were closed, and I asked why. Uh, some why, some why, and not not at the mountain, like the hotel. And they said um, not enough people to operate them. Again, that's immigration. Right now, some of it's COVID for sure. Obviously, the last two years, the world's been in a different place than it's, than it's been in 100 years. Uh, but uh, also, there's super high skilled, you know, engineering type talent. But there's also immigration. You need to do jobs that some Americans don't want to do. Right. So, right. I mean, no, I, I mean, I, I think they are they are obviously related issues. They 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 can be separated though. I mean, the the I think the 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 pressure. The downward pressure on wages that comes from um, open immigration with with uh, for low skill for low skill immigration is is, is tricky um, as a political issue. Yeah, uh, although again, and this is maybe now where kind of the left wing solution should meet with the right wing solution. That's why fifteen dollar federal minimum wage makes a lot of sense to me, right? Because then you're you're creating a baseline of protection for American workers. And you're also, by the way, paying them enough that their reliance on government programs will go down significantly. And even more important, really terrible things like people and kids not having enough to eat uh, cease to be nearly as much of a problem when people make more money. Right. Right. Um, well, well, Bradley, we have a lot of, as we were laying this out, we, we had, um, speaking of food, a, a smorgasbord of topics. Yeah. Um, ending, ending with Top Chef. I think, I think we're, this is going to be, just so the listeners know, a, a longer episode today. And uh, obviously, <laughs> just turn it wait, off. Wait, how much stuff do you have to say on Top Chef? I mean, this is coming last, everybody. Don't worry. It's probably 45, 50 minutes worth of stuff, I'd say. <laughs> Good. Okay. I have, well, a, I have three very quick observations or two. So. <laughs> um, but first, uh, before we get to Top Chef, we're, we're, we, need to, we need to get into this issue surrounding daylight savings time, which I, I, you, you sent me this first article and it took me, I didn't read it for a day or two. And I was like, oh, it's, I, I don't, it's not that I don't care. I was just sort of like, I, I, I thought it was a fairly straightforward issue. Like, oh, sure. Just make it like everybody it breathes a sigh of relief when, when daylight savings time kicks in and suddenly it's not getting dark in the afternoon and, and, and the whole, the whole world seems kind of brighter and, 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 and more fun to, to exist in. And then I, I read the stories and it's it's actually like like incredibly complicated, um, and also like I, I guess I don't know what the right answer is. So first of all, I just want to ask you your position. Should we do one of three things? Should yep. we be on standard time all the time? 
Yeah. Should we continue the division between the two or should we be on daylight savings time all the time? Tell me your position and then explain to me why. My position is daylight savings all the time, even okay. though experts would say it's not the right position, right? So I, I thought when I first- experts in particular. Yeah. So when, when the article first sort of came across, I was like, fantastic. I hate daylight savings time. Um, not so much the hour shifting twice a year, but just the like, you know, we live in New York, or like 4.15 in the dead of winter, 4 o'clock, it's dark out, it's depressing, you know, uh, much in the same way that we've talked about. Wait, so you like daylight savings time then? I like it when it's lighter out later. Right. That's daylight savings time. Yeah. Right. So I'm saying right. I, I that's you just said you didn't like it, but go ahead. I was happy to see the old system eliminated, right? Um, because I want it to be lighter or longer because it is depressing. And just like I think we've talked before about are people who live in better climates happier simply because they have nicer weather. Um, I think sunlight is, is a big factor in that. So to me, it was like, hey, good news. Congress actually accomplished something for once. And then I was texting with my brother-in-law, who's, as listeners know, is in the house. And uh, I said to him, oh, this, when, when will you guys move this bill? Um, it passed the Senate, but has not passed. 100 to nothing, right? right? So it hasn't moved in the House yet. And he said, he texted back, I'm getting killed by the Orthodox community over this, which I thought he was fucking around, right? So like, (laughs) so so we're going back and forth and I realized he's serious. I said, what's, I think I, then I called him, what's the issue? And he's like, it totally screws up their schedule. It's like when they go to Minion in the morning and then when they go to work and when Shabbos starts and all of this stuff. And I was like, okay, there's always someone who doesn't like something. Right. I guess in this case, it's it's the ultra-Orthodox on the Jewish side. But then these articles came out saying that the American Academy of Sleep Medicine issued a statement basically also opposing um, the change. And I'll, I'll read you what they say the risk is. It's that standard time is more closely associated with humans' intrinsic circadian rhythm and that disrupting that rhythm, as happens with daylight savings time, has been associated with increased risks of obesity, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, and depression. So that's some heavy guns there, man. Yeah, obesity, I, I, metabolic I was syndrome. With my doctor this week, and I don't know how this possibly came up, but it did. And she but made the same case. This is the kind of thing I assume would come up with your doctor when yeah, you're your so. doctor. So, right? They're trying to tell me like my heart condition or not that I have one. Right. But like, like, what do you do about daylight like savings time? Yeah, I'm asking those stupid questions. Um, so she made the same case. So then I, I thought about it a little more and I landed in the same place, which is, yes, I understand that if we were to have one of two times, standard would be a little better because it's more in line with human circadian rhythms. I understand that. But I also understand that everyone hates it, right? It makes everyone unhappy. It makes everyone upset. But wait, wait, that's not true though. So so did you read that post story? So apparently, you know, so Nixon, he made daylight savings time, not permanent, but he, but he, I guess for some limited amount of time, an emergency like, you know, move for, because of the, because of the energy crisis, he makes daylight savings time permanent, right? Yeah. Or at least like the whole year round. And Ford changes it back because there's an outcry from parents because, you know, the flip side, obviously, of daylight yeah, savings yeah, time yeah, is right. that, like, That's- in the winter, it means that, like, it's 7 o'clock in the morning. It's still pitch black, at least in New York City. And, like, people hate that. So, so interestingly, I mean, there, 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 are, there, is, an, there is a lifestyle uh, piece of yeah, it. Yeah, but, but, well. but you know, if that were still the popular political sentiment, the United States Senate, which can't do anything – Right, <laughs> you're not you a good point. Yes. 
Yes. So, That's like, right. so not even not one of them. Was, not even one of these assholes would have known. So like they could be just stupid though, Bradley. There's it's always possible. Um, you know, look, they, they may or may not ever know the substance of an issue, but they do know the politics, right? Uh, very and, well said. Literally the politics here. Uh, okay, so a- wait, I want to ask you a question because you you get up when it's dark, like almost mm-hmm. every day, right? Yeah, yeah every day. And do, do you find that to be like? Is that just a basic like? aspect of your being and it's no problem and you just it's it cool it's I get up I, I make coffee i read the papers i work and like truth is that hour hour and a half before everyone else gets up uh is great i love it and i could care but less. how does the darkness affect you like out in the out it, in it your house upstate, yeah, honestly i, I really you notice it yeah no, not at all but i notice it in the afternoon when it yeah. gets dark early so right. for, for me, at least. So anyway, my, my view is despite the experts' uh, warnings and opinions, the smart play here is to make people happy um, and uh, eliminate standard time. So and, what did your brother-in-law say about it passing the house then? I mean, he's he's got the orthodox I, on his case, but like other than that. And, you know, I, he doesn't – his community is not so orthodox. I imagine that he's going to have to vote against it anyway. But, you know um, – but just it was the first I heard of any actual opposition to the bill itself. Wow. Well, this is a good and, – and then Biden gets to do this great thing, sunshine for all Americans, and then – It may know. end up being the most popular thing he ever does. <laughs> um, I realize that we've totally messed up the order here because the next subject on our, um, on our list here is the new sort of uh, proposed law in the, in the UK, which would have worked yeah. – really nicely in conjunction with our with our uk tech conversation so oh yeah we it up yeah and but then we also talk about eric adams but um so so he, the uk is considering a law right now that basically says if you are a tech platform and you were told to provide certain information to the uk government and you fail to do so you can go to jail right. um and this is sort of a new much harsher penalty. Uh, in fact, the, the bill was just to show you that we're not the only completely ineffective democracy. This was a bill that was drafted two years ago uh, and still is being thought about in the UK. Right. It's, it was presented to Parliament a couple of days ago. Um, and they basically said there's now criminal liability for destroying evidence, failing to attend to provide false information, obstructing watchdogs, things like that. And so my first reaction was like, oh, you know, should we have that here? Too, um, because listeners of this podcast know that we have frequently called for the repeal of Section 230 and strengthening of privacy laws, or creating privacy laws in the U.S. And, and strengthening antitrust laws. And so I thought about it a little bit. And while I still don't think it's a bad hammer to have, you know, I, I looked up kind of does Section Section 230, which protects internet platforms from legal liability based on the content posted by their users. Is that a protection that is enjoyed around the world by tech companies or just here in the United States? And the answer is around the world. So uh, it exists in the EU and in the UK, uh, at least based on what we're on Wikipedia right now, um, if if the operator can show that they didn't post the statement, they're not liable, right? Which right. is basically the same thing. So right. it, it seems to me that then the question is, what is a more effective deterrent to tech companies? Is it the risk of criminal prosecution or is it losing liability protection and having to deal with endless litigation and plaintiff's lawsuits and the plaintiff's bar and everything else? And it seems to me that if I had to bet on 
a government regulator or the plaintiff's bar being a more effective force for change in the situation, I'm betting on the plaintiff's bar 100 times out of 100. Um, so I, I just think still, and look, this gets back to your point about Europe that we started with, so we actually are connecting it, which is there's still this view, um, certainly in, in Europe, but I think frequently the U.S. too, that you know government is, is the right entity to do lots of different things. Um, and sometimes it is the right entity to do certain things, right? But uh, I think sometimes you are better off leaving it um, to the private sector or the nonprofit sector or the courts or, or whatever else it is. Uh, and to me, this is a clear case of that. I have to admit, I was a little confused by the the, the UK proposal though, because I was like, well, they're just they're not they're not going to hold like tech executives like they're going to throw them in jail for like posting inflammatory stuff on social. Uh, media platforms. They're just saying like if they hide what they're doing from the government and destroy evidence. And you're like, well, what wasn't there? Isn't that, that isn't that a? I mean, what I'm curious about is like, okay, well, you know, the the, the tech industry isn't the only uh, industry out there that's not complying with the government. Um, so so they're gonna they're gonna make a special law for for tech executives who do this what about like financial executives who do this or I, mean, I think that's probably industry? already the case you know frequently speaking there are laws that you probably could apply to something that prosecutors could uh, right. but politicians want to drive home the point for political purposes so right. they pass another law that makes it specific like you know in the, in the 90s that's how you got the whole cocaine crack sentencing disparity, right? Was it everyone wanted to show they were being tough on the crack epidemic? Right, right. And so they started passing these ex- excessively punitive uh, sentences for people caught with crack cocaine that were just wildly different than people caught with, with regular cocaine, which is just, they shouldn't really be different. Um, so it, this very well may be the same thing, but it gets back to the same point again, which is, you know, a, a, a lot of finding the right public policy and balance to make a society function as well as it can is really understanding that there is a, a mix between public sector laws and activities that need to happen and private sector. And it's not so ideologically just deciding that one or the other is totally superior and favoring them, which is what the left and the right have done in this country, but understanding that it's a mix and in every single case, it's different, right? And I think just like we fail to get that in the US and we have this whole movement that makes it impossible for people to uh, say what they think anymore without being excoriated, um, it then, uh, you know, it, it, it leads to uh, less optimal outcomes as well. And Hugo, I hope you noticed what I just did, which is I provided a perfect transition and segue into the next topic. I, I didn't, but go ahead and, 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 and run with it, Bradley. Okay. So uh, Puck, which is a, a, a new site, kind of a, a commentary analysis news site that will be, I know Hugo and I both like a lot. And uh, John Kelly, who's the founder and CEO, whatever his title is, has been on this podcast um, so we're, we're fans and, and friends of theirs. So there was an article that came through that, that first caught my mind because I'll, I'll read. This is the second sentence of the first paragraph. The first thing I read on Friday morning at 6.15 a.m. was a tweet from Adam Davidson, the pi- podcasting pioneer and journalist who wrote a much heralded column for The Times Magazine during the height of the Hugo Lindgren era. Oh so it was, it, was, it was your name that kind of caught me going on it's it. like a jolt of caffeine in the morning just like your coffee it's four yeah, o'clock in the morning exactly. who, who, up. Who, who needs daylight i got hugo um <laughs> so but so then i went on to then read the rest of the story because at that point i was curious and, and it was about like basically an attempt by the times to publish an editorial that says kind of that we're not against cancel culture 
we're not for cancel culture and we want kind of a variety of viewpoints, all the things that, by the way, a newspaper shouldn't even have to say, right? It just should be basic that, hey, we represent lots of different viewpoints. We give you different perspectives. We give you the facts and you make up your own minds. But the Times has so ceased to do that that they tried to publish an editorial saying, um, hey, you know, this is not entirely who we are, the criticism that we're taking. They couldn't even get that right, right? It went on for two months. It got watered down. Sulzberger, the kid who runs it, is so weak and so lame that he can't even control his own editorial board, let alone his own newsroom. Um, and they basically ended up with a super mealy mouth piece. And so the, the question for you, because you know this institution is, is it, is it well, I'll, I'll do your one of three daily savings time things, okay. right? <laughs> one, is it what it looks like, which is Sulzberger is incredibly weak, lacks the ability to control his own newsroom and his own editorial board, and can't even get his own editorials published. That's A. B would be, is it effectively an effort that didn't really go anywhere because it conflicts with the underlying business model that has worked for the Times, which is, same as Fox News, go all in on one party, one ideology, excoriate anyone who's different in any single way, um, and right. the people who that makes feel better about their lives for whatever reason um, are going to make you enough money through subscriptions and advertising and everything else that, you right. know, the right business model. So, so actually capitalism won by the editorial sort of not really happening the way they wanted. Or the third would be Salzburger, uh, you know, lives in a world of rich and powerful people in New York City and everywhere else. Most of those rich and powerful people uh, hate what's happening at the Times, right? Because they're far more likely to be criticized uh, than they would have been before um, right. as a result. So is it – third, was it he, was he making some effort to try to appease people and say, no, I'm working on it. Look, I just did this editorial. Um, and But as a result, he didn't really put all of his weight into it because it was more of like uh, just taking a shot to change the narrative a little bit on the inside and didn't really matter all that much. So which of those three would you pick? Okay, I think I'd pick a modified three of those of uh, the third one, but modified. I I have to say I, I I'm I'm not as I'm I'm not quite as harsh on the New York Times uh, as you are, and I and and I, I also I I didn't work closely with with Sulzberger, but I, I do know him slightly, and and I you know I, I don't I don't know that he's doing a great job. I, I don't really know, frankly. I, I it's he's certainly not got great PR at the moment, um, but. Uh, but I think, I think there is a division inside the New York Times, and again, this is this is, you know, out there in the spectator area. Like most people, I, I I don't spend a lot of time trying to sort out what's happening internally there, nor do I ultimately care all that much. But but I I think so that you, so you worked there for a long time. Everyone's, everyone's always curious, but it's, but it's a very about, different place than when I worked there. Like yeah, I, I, I always curious about gossip in their old workplace. Yeah. Kind of okay, that's fair enough. I I think here here's what I think. I think that the 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 Times leadership um, is is somewhat like the the Democrat has a problem similar to the Democratic Party, where e even though I, I think your 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 assessment of its business model being like Fox News, I think is 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 uh, you know persuasive, but I don't think it actually represents the thinking of of Sulzberger himself, and I I think that the 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 
the senior management of the New York Times wants a a a more they they still believe in the sort of all the news that's fit to print even as they've moved to the left over over the last few years they still they still believe in that as the ideal and there is a, a significant tension between that ideal and the the um the 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 younger more vocal progressive elements of the New York Times and they have been extremely effective at getting their point across and winning support the progressives have um, for 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 the for the New York Times that they want, and they have really pulled the paper in that direction. Um, I, I think it, it I think it has helped the bottom line for the New York Times ultimately, but 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 is that a sustainable model? I'm not sure, and I'm not sure that the senior management thinks it is either. Um, again, this is speculation. I have you know I haven't I haven't heard that from from someone in a position to know, but I but I see that they're they're hand wringing over what the next phase of the business cycle looks like for them. So what, what and, happens to the times then if, um, let's say the business, because, you know, in terms of reviewing Salzberger, I would say stock price is up. He has clearly been a success from a corporate financial standpoint because they figured out a model that really works economically. The quality of the newspaper, simply because it's hard to be of quality when you're a completely one-sided organ, um, right. is way down. So as a publisher, He's a tremendous failure. So, but let's say you're the Times, right? And you the, like your business model because you're making money where everyone else in media is getting destroyed. Um, but the people who Sulzberger has lunch with or breakfast with or runs into um, basically have stopped reading the Times or caring about what it what they say anymore. Yeah, right? I, I don't know that. I don't know that his personal circle is quite what you think it is. But uh, uh, you know. It, it, even his dad, who cared a lot more about being a kind of man about town, um, was was, you know, didn't have like tons of Wall Street friends or anything like that. Like he's he's not that guy. No, but it's, um, it's, the, it's the times worse off if powerful, influential people have stopped reading it, or does it not matter as long as they're making money? Um, no, I think it matters for the long-term uh, viability of it, for sure. I mean, it 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 depends on being influential across the you know across the entire world. Like uh, you know, it's it's it its value as a its its long-term value depends on its influence among powerful people, for sure. I, I think the subscription business model has skewed their incentives um, temporarily. Um, I don't know that that's the the you know the, the going to be the story, you know, going forward, like forever. Um, so I think they, they need to figure out a course that's, that's, you know, that's less reactive. Um, and, and that's, I think, I think that that editorial is, is an example of that. It's pretty ham fisted. I, I don't think it probably did anything, but, but, uh, project some, a lot of unwanted attention, um, and, but I, so I, I, don't, I don't think he's trying to placate anything necessarily. I think he is concerned about the, uh, you know, that, that, that the, the moment we're living in isn't, isn't the one we're going to be in, um, uh, f- for the foreseeable future. So anyway, I, 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 I think it's, I think it's a, you know, in the end of the day too, it's like one editorial, like, oh my God, there's the, the amount of, you know, articles that people suffer and die over there is, is endless. So, right. but um, I guess, can you imagine if at a normal company, if at my company, I told someone to do something <laughs> and, and, and it didn't happen, let alone, um, you know, it, it, for like a month, 
they just sort right. of hung on and didn't do it. And then they eventually did a totally. Well, the good thing is, Gabby, you have a 50 person company or 75 person company and, and everybody who works there is someone you've met and know and, and, and wouldn't be working there if you didn't feel it's like they sure. were adding and I, value. I why if, if he wants to change the, the, the delivery schedule from 630 drop off to 615, that might take a little bit of time. The editorial board is supposed to be yeah. the handpicked group uh, by yeah, the but it's not, but it's not, but it's, not, but it's also not a rubber stamp committee, right? So, like the the point of it isn't to be like, hey, the the reason for having the editorial board isn't so that like he can walk in the room and say, publish this shit right now. They, they're supposed to like throw up roadblocks of stuff that they don't like or they think yeah. is flawed well, or whatever. I'll just so, make this clear. Should, should I ever own a, a newspaper or a media outlet? Uh, and if you're on the editorial board for that, you will be fired if you don't report. <laughs> I know, but you're never going to start a media company because you, you, terrible you think business. it's a terrible business. That's the problem. That's the problem. Um, sports and city. So I sent you this article. So Eric Adams, mayor of New York City, um, you know, there's a lot happening right now around different COVID mandates, lifting them. The kids in New York City are no longer required to wear masks. Um, but the New York law still would prevent unvaccinated members of the Mets and the Yankees from playing home games. And the law has prohibited Nets star point guard Kyrie Irving uh, from playing home games because Kyrie refuses to get vaccinated. It does seem to be inspiring him to play very well on the road, though, doesn't it? <laughs> he's been excellent on the road, yeah. But uh, I think he's actually just that good. Um, but But let me give the quote from Adams because it just struck me as such a major normative shift in politics on how uh, elected officials and voters perceive sports. Okay. So Adam said, um, I'm not going to be rushed, rushed in based on a season schedule. I'm going to do right for the people of the city, and I'm not focusing on one individual. I'm focusing on 9 million people. Um, that is, Even though that seems like a totally logical thing to say, I think it, it's actually a somewhat radical thing to say, or, or would have been maybe 10, 15 years ago, in that politicians always felt hostage to uh, the needs of the local teams, because the local teams are popular, politicians are not popular. And every time a George Steinbrenner were threatened to move to New Jersey or Florida, wherever it was, they would jump to and figure out how to get them more public subsidies and more taxpayer money and more infrastructure. Um, or at the very least, if there was an issue like this where, um, you know, Steinbrenner said, hey, my star right fielder Aaron Judge won't be able to play if you have this rule, you have to repeal it. You know, Rudy Giuliani would have repealed it in 30 seconds, right? Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is not so much that, you know, Eric Adams or, or some of his peers have become more righteous. Uh, it's that the politics have shifted where if you are now kind of in tow to a sports team um, at the expense of the population, you're going to be politically punished for it, not rewarded. So it's some good examples uh, in Atlanta, um, as we all saw from the – or for those few of us who actually still watch baseball, saw from the World Series last year, the Braves played a place called Truist Park, which is in um, in Cobb County, but not in the city of Atlanta. The Braves wanted all kinds of tax benefits in return for staying in the city. And I think Kasim Reed was the mayor at the time. And he said, you know what? Screw you. I'm not going to give it to you. Um, and that's why they left and went to the suburbs. And he did not pay a political price for that one bit. Or in Oakland, Libby Schaff, who's the mayor, same thing with the Raiders. Um, she said, I, you know, it's only so much I'm willing to do to keep you here because we have bigger problems and priorities in football. And the Raiders, Mark Davis, left and, and moved to Las Vegas. And so, you know, I've been kind of noticing that trend for a while now. But then in, in seeing what Adam says, it, it feels to me like, like the worm has now completely turned. Um, and 
again, if you assume that everything politicians do starts with the political realities of it and then ends with the policy and substantive realities of it, um, the political reality that must therefore be that um, voters not only don't care about sports anymore in terms of what they want their elected officials to do, they actually want to see their elected officials stand up to sports teams um, and not give away taxpayer money or not change policies just for them. Well, look, I definitely agree with with the the stadium issue, and and first of all, I, I think your overall point is 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 completely right. I'm not sure Adams is. Uh, I, I have some doubts about his position on the on the on the merits here. Never mind the politics, right? How so? So so. You know, you can show up at a at a at a at a Nets game and not wear a mask. Um, as I, I mean, I, I went to a, a, an ACC basketball tournament at Barclays, but you can't play in it. Like you can't play in the game. Like what, what exactly is the policy? What is the science that like supposedly stands behind that? And, and furthermore, I will say this too. And, and it's actually, I'm going to try to frame this as a question, but you feel free to, if I don't feel free to just jump in and disagree. Look, I, I, I'm not sure the Nets are a very popular team in New York City. I, I saw the list of local TV ratings for the NBA and the Nets are near the bottom. Um, weirdly, the, the, the Knicks are much higher. Um, so the, the, the sort of popularity of the Nets is, is, is not anywhere near what, um, what the Mets and Yankees are. If, if Aaron Judge can't play home games, when that actually happens, if in fact, I mean, it's, it's all vague about whether he's vaccinated. The whole thing is driving me crazy. But like if, if key players on the Mets and Yankees cannot appear at Shea, State City Field and Yankee Stadium, I think people are going to be majorly pissed off. Um, and I think that's a that's a potential political force that you, Bradley Tusk, of all people, might know how to like make something out of. Yeah, although I'm curious to see if it comes to that where Adams goes, and you know, uh, if if I were to weigh in either privately or publicly on this, um, and again, I, I try to give advice based on substance, but also politics, right? The sure. reason why politicians are willing to take my advice or at least listen to it is because I understand what they care about and yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm giving them. So I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not even sure. I guess we'll, we'll keep an eye on this in the next few weeks or so. Opening day is uh, like April 7th or something like that. No, so it's, I think it's the 15th, isn't it? It's later, the home it? opener for the match is April 15th because I'll be there. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. But I think the overall opening day, uh, I assume the Yankees are, are opening at home, but I don't really know. So let, let me ask you a completely unrelated. Wait, no, question. I, 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 want to, I want to ask you one more question on this, though, just because. Well, hold on, let, let me just jump in. Which is go ahead. Sam the dog just ate um, Princess Carol and the cat's cat food. Is it a problem if dogs eat cat food? No, I think dogs can eat garbage. I mean, they're dogs. Fine, right? Yeah. Oh my right. god, we're gonna get canceled now because I just said that. I don't know what. No, dogs need to be fed much better things than garbage. I have to retract that. I, I had no. put the. I had put, you know Abby got a cat a couple weeks ago. The cat's brand new. Okay. Uh, jump like incredible heights. So I put the food up a little higher so that Sam wouldn't get it. Um, but Sam fooled me despite his old age, managed to get up on the table and uh, eat Princess Carol. Wow. I, I'm going to, I'm going to just, just uh, admit total ignorance on this issue, but I would not be worried about what dogs eat. That would, that would be my core position, but I also don't know. Right. So, like, like um, chocolate, right. There's, it's all like dogs can't eat chocolates. We, we came home once during the Christmas, kind of right before Christmas and someone had sent us some chocolate and Sam got right. into it and Lyle and I rushed him to an animal hospital I was thinking about it. Like, do you know anyone's whose dog has ever died from chocolate? 
No, but yeah. I, I assume that would just be a bad like poop situation, not like a like a life threatening. Sit- right, but I went to some emergency room, spent hundreds of thousand dollars, and all you know, waste of time and whatever did else. Pump the stomach. Yeah. No, they did not. I they took him away, and they did. Yeah. Oh my god! I mean, by the way, they have to do something for the dog owning. It's not what it what it used to be. Um, I haven't owned a dog since I was a kid, so I, my opinion on this means little, literally nothing. Um, wait, I want to ask you a question about the the Mets and, and vaccines, though. Yeah. What what are the key players for the Mets that are thought not to have been vaccinated, or you know, if you don't, are, are there? I was it, looking. There, there wasn't a lot of evidence that I could find. Degrom right. was sort of the leader of the team. I think I, I think he's been vaccinated. Right. Um, and then if you look at the other people, uh, Max Scherzer. Certainly, if, if he hadn't been vaccinated, we would know about it because he's such a vocal guy. Right. Uh, I feel like he would have made it an issue. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Uh, but but Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor were probably the other two major players. There's probably four real stars on this team. Um, if I had to Starling bet. Marte, bro. Starling Marte. Starling Marte, maybe number five or six. Yeah. He's but, like, uh, I think he's the top ranked. I just looked at the fantasy baseball rings. I said he was in the top twenty-five for this year, for of everything or of like outfield yeah, for everything. Well, he better be in the top twenty-five of the Mets. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's twenty-six people on the roster now, so you know someone's not in the top twenty-five. Um, so, uh, all right, Bradley, we, we're we're getting to the to 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 the to the topic that you've been waiting the entire podcast to yeah. weigh in on. Um, uh, you, you I, I know literally nothing about this, so it's just you're going to have to run with it. Um, Top Chef, you watched what the first several episodes of it? Mm-hmm. What, 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 so, so what's going yeah, on? I'll give some background. So, Top Chef is on its 19th season. Um, watched it in the first six, seven years, enjoyed it quite a bit. And then, when the kids kind of came and then were very little, probably went a good five or six years without watching it at all for, for obvious reasons. And then, about again, six, seven years ago, the kids started watching it with us and they were really into it. It was one of the show that you could, no matter what age someone is, it's totally appropriate basically. So, um, so we'd watch seasons in Charleston and LA and Portland and Colorado and a whole bunch of places. And they're in Houston this year. And the four of us, uh, reflective, I guess, of everyone getting older and busier, um, had not been able to find uh, a common hour to watch each episode over the last few weeks as it restarted. Um, so the plan was, okay, we're going to be upstate Saturday, Sunday on Saturday night. Let's do like a top chef marathon. So we watched the first three episodes of the new season, which is based in Houston. There's a couple of things I sort of noticed, uh, that I think after 19 seasons, I guess it's just what happens, but I I wonder if it sort of changes the character of the show itself. The, The first is everyone who watches top chef right now, uh, who's on? I'm sorry. Who, everyone's on Top Chef right now has been watching it for the last 19 years, right? Because they love this shit, uh, right? Right. So as a result, the way they're behaving is not the way they're behaving. They're behaving the way they think you're supposed to behave on Top Chef. Right. Uh, now, look, people behave on Top Chef generally like professionals, not like you know uh, regular reality TV where they're encouraged to be as psychotic as possible. Um, but essentially, you can see that they know how to gain the system now, right? So now, when someone screws up. Um, they know to take full accountability, right? They know that when they blame someone else or try to shift it a little bit or anything else, it just makes the judges angry and gets them in more trouble. Um, they know what to make and what not to make, right? So they know that, you know, if you're making pasta and there was a, a carb episode or a challenge, um, 
if Tom Colicchio is going to be the judge, do not make risotto because he's going to hate your risotto because it's not going to be nearly as good as his. Um, Tom, by the way, also a, a former guest on Firewall. Um, and, and the third tune is most interesting is something they've really gotten right, which is diversity. Um, some parts of life maybe require a greater emphasis of diversity than others. But I think food, at least in this country, really does because what makes food in this country so great is its diversity, right? Is that you can have right. every kind of food, especially in a place like New York City, um, that you could ever want. And a lot of it is really delicious. And it's not just all Michelin-starred restaurants and things like that. Um, and so the cast has gotten sort of more and more diverse each season uh, to the point now where I think it is, is really reflective uh, of the country as a whole. But the other thing that was interesting, uh, maybe this one got me canceled like you just did with the the times or whatever it was uh dogs. dogs no i don't think i'm gonna cancel on the dog i got canceled on the dogs. right which is i don't think I'll get so the in the first few seasons or earlier on at least it felt like look of, of 15 contestants 20 whatever it is you know a few are going to be gay obviously and it felt like in the first early times those contestants often kind of banded together because they felt like an outlier in the group and therefore there's more right. strength in numbers and the last few seasons, I really haven't seen that at all, including when the three that we watched last night. I think just because society has progressed to the point where that doesn't feel as necessary, right? Um, and so that was kind of a, a nice, a really nice thing in a way, in that if if my analysis is right, and it may not be, that some of the even pressures that contestants felt 19 years ago um, are pressures that don't really exist in the same way today, uh, and we're better for it. Well, uh, that's quite uplifting, Bradley. I, I, what about that would, well, I won't even, uh, I, I shouldn't even ask, but what, what about that would make you think you would get canceled? Because, because it involves like a, like a, a, a sort of caricature of, of, of contestants who seemed gay. I'm analyzing the behavior and patterns of a underrepresented and protected class. Right, right. I see. Right. I guess that is a little dangerous to do in any context, but I think the way you phrased it and handled it um, seems right. um, seems respectful and 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 not in any way um, discriminatory. Cool. Um, all right. So been forty five minutes. Thanks for those of you who are still listening. Uh, Thursday is Lori Siegel Hugo. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, Lori Siegel just wrote a great new memoir about covering tech, uh, and it's a fun. Yeah, she's a so. CNN tech yeah. sort of guru or reporter in any case. Yeah, so I encourage everyone to listen in, and uh, Hugo, I'll talk to you later. Thanks, man.